And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to, well, it's the first day of a new week, so there we go. And it's also really kind of the start, and we talked about this last week, that, you know, on Friday we had some big banks come out and announce earnings, but we're going to go out and get to the heart of earnings season now this week, next week, and the following week, uh, which will all kind of culminate right into the FOMC meeting. So uh, lots of stuff to be driving the markets here over the next uh, few days in particular, so don't be surprised if volatility picks up here a little bit. So far, though, markets continuing to, you know, do what they do. And uh, they've been doing much better than expected. The month of July continuing uh, to register new 52-week highs for the S&P and the NASDAQ. So again, not really too much to worry about here. Again, the big focus is, gonna, of course, going to be on earnings season as we start to move more into this. The big question of course, is whether or not earnings can live up to expectations. And while analysts have drastically cut expectations for earnings for this quarter uh, from uh, this time last year, um, the bar is set pretty low. We'll have a high beat rate, but analyst expectations going forward are pretty optimistic. And we're starting to see a lot of estimates now getting raised for these companies going forward, expecting that maybe the worst is behind us. But the one thing we have to keep a, a, a watch on and a remind and remind ourselves of is that earnings have to come from somewhere, right? They have to, you know, the what wh where companies make earnings is from the sales that they make, and then of course they pay all their expenses, and that's how you get to earnings. Uh, that's kind of basic math, but the sales have to increase, which means you need stronger economic growth. So there's still this question that's lingering out there about whether or not there'll be a recession you know, uh, in the months to come. And of course, lots of indicators that suggest that may well be the case, leading economic indicators and others, uh, yield curves, et cetera, have all been suggesting a recession. Haven't seen one yet because of all the liquidity and stimulus that's been in the markets. Lots of monetary supply supporting the markets, federal expenditures increasing. Um, that's all feeding into this economy. And that's been one thing that's keeping this economic growth going, just lots of money. Uh, the question is whether or not that recession actually shows up. And, you know, the Federal Reserve been hiking rates, trying to slow down inflation. Inflation falling, as we saw last week. Headline CPI now down to 3%. That's pretty good news. Nobody's really talking about that much, but inflation is coming down on a year-over-year -year basis. Unfortunately, prices really aren't. Things remain fairly expensive in terms of what's going on and what the consumer is having to buy. And interest rates remain high, which, of course, is crimping the ability for consumers to continue to buy things in the economy. 70% of our economy's consumption, that's where revenue comes from at the top line for earnings. The rest of that has to filter down. So these expectations that are very elevated going into next year um, either have to come down a good bit or we're about to see a very strong pickup in economic activity. I don't know which one it's going to be. You can make your own bets on that, your own conclusions. But there's certainly a lot of competing data. And we've been going through this on the show here now for a while, is that you know, for every optimistic argument that we can come up with, there's also a pessimistic one. 
And the problem with that competing data is ultimately trying to figure out which side of that ledger is right. And, and again, from the bearish point of view, there's a lot of fundamental factors that certainly back up that view. Valuations this year have been rising. In fact, the vast majority of, of the gains this year come solely from valuation expansions rather than improvement in earnings. And that's not sustainable, obviously. So we need earnings to start to improve. But again, as you look at you know, kind of the other data, high interest rates, et cetera, certainly suggest that earnings may be under pressure here for a bit longer. In other words, earnings could improve somewhat, but it's unlikely that they're going to improve enough to match analyst expectations, particularly on a go forward basis. But this is really kind of you know, the things we're going to be keeping a watch on, particularly this quarter. Uh, and as we get into earnings season over the next couple of weeks, don't pay so much attention to what the earnings are, right? They beat earnings, they beat revenue, that's fine. Pay attention to what they say about the future. Is the future actually improving for them? Are they starting to see an improvement in activity? And that's where really we're going to get a lot of our clues about where we're going to from here and, and potentially what happens next. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning, because this week is we're going to see a lot of financial bank earnings. We started this on Friday with, with uh, some of the major banks. We're going to have some more major banks this week, as well as some regional banks really starting to kind of report their earnings. Again, when we take a look back over the, the beginning of this year, regional banks under a lot of trouble because of these higher interest rates have led to a decline in the collateral values of the banks. This is what led to the takeover of Silicon Valley Bank, Republic Bank, etc. Are those declines in asset values. Of course, since then, we've also seen a lot of monetary outflows from these banks as customers were moving deposits to bigger banks, also moving money into money market funds. And of course, the Federal Reserve had to come in bring in their BTFB backstop, which was funding, uh, provided loans to these banks against their collateral uh, to keep them from going under. So that seems to have stabilized a lot of the banking sector. But here's the question you have to ask yourself about banks. Can the environment get any better for banks? At 5% interest on the Fed funds rate, credit card interest rates are now 22%. Net interest income is off the charts for these banks. They are making a ton of money. The banks that are reporting uh, earnings on Friday noted very, very big increases, up to 50% increases in net interest income. That's the spread between what they borrow at and what they lend at. And despite that, uh, banks actually sold off on Friday. So, you know, how does this get any better for banks in terms of an environment for banking? Of course, they do have risk of, of credit card losses at this point, you know, risk of credit card, uh, uh, commercial real estate issues, certainly sitting there on the books, not denying that at all. But in terms of their income run, you've got the market going up. If you're doing investment banking, like a JP Morgan, et cetera, investment banking revenues are rising, that interest income is rising. And here's the, here's the thing about this. If the environment can't get really any better from a revenue side for banks, financials are a big sector of the S&P. It's going to be a challenge for the S&P to continue to rise indefinitely without financials participating in the markets. And again, yes, financials have done better since August. Of course, nothing near 
what we saw for technology stocks in particular. But yes, yeah, since the October lows, we have certain and really kind of since uh, March where we saw this kind of sell off in the banks because of the whole regional bank issue, they have certainly recovered here a bit, but still lagging the market overall this year and still putting out a negative return for the year so far. But importantly, when we step back and look at banks on a longer term basis, um, banks peaked back at the beginning of 22 and really have not done a lot. Uh, since they bottomed really kind of in June, July of last year. We've been in this kind of big trading consolidation range. But again, the environment for the income side for banks is very good right now. Yes, there's certainly risk to the bank stocks because of commercial real estate, because of you know kind of what's happening with credit cards, potentially threats of the economy, inverted yield curves, et cetera. Certainly some pressure on banks. But again, when you take a look at what they're reporting right now, net interest income increases, et cetera. It certainly seems like the banks should be doing better than they are, but they're just not getting a lot of love because at the moment it's all about technology. It's all about those top seven stocks. But the real point here is that we need to start to see banks improve more. We need to see a better improvement in banks. Banks make up a very large position in the S&P 500 on a waiting basis. So if the markets are going to continue to improve, technology can't be the only sector really kind of driving the markets higher. We need to see that broaden out, pick up in these other sectors, see financials begin to gain some traction here. Again, we're long a couple of small regional banks right now, but uh, again, we are looking for opportunities here for some, some more improvement as they come along. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Now, as we come back, we'll get into some of the other areas of the markets as well as we start to think about where the economy is headed to over the course of the next, you know, kind of few months, the rest of this year. Don't go away. More of The Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence and prepare for the second half of 2023 with the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review. Saturday, July 22nd. With Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Chief Investment Strategist Lance Roberts. Get our report card for the market so far and what you need to know to invest profitably for the rest of the year. Register now for the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review, Saturday, July 22nd, with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So the big question, of course, as always, and particularly as we start out a new earnings season here and, and start to look at um, potentially where, you know, the, the market is going to be over the next quarter. Again, it's the beginning of a new quarter for the most part. And so lots of debates right now, tons of emails over the weekend, you know, kind of really splitting the coin here between you know, concerns over economic activity and, and growth, still getting a lot of emails about you know, the collapse of this and, you know, how can how can this be happening when you have these other issues out there? And again, you know, it's certainly lots of reason for, you know, concern. You know, there's lots of, uh, again, lots of economic data, right, that, that certainly sits out there and says, oh, a recession's coming. But again, you know, we've gotten ourselves locked into this view that recessions are bad, everything else is good, and if you're going to have a recession, that means 
that must equate to the end of the world. And that's not the case. And this is a mistake that we tend to make. We tend to kind of run everything on extremes. Um, and, and again, this is primarily due to the media. Uh, if you take a look at the media on anything from politics to economics to, you know, the markets, it's either everything is wonderful or everything is, is, is the end of the world, right? On politics side, you've got extreme right, extreme left. Nobody talks about what's in the middle because the middle's boring, right? You know, it's the people on the extreme right or the extreme left that are making the headlines, doing crazy stuff, right? But the vast majority of people live somewhere in the middle. Nobody talks about them. It's boring. Um, we talk about economic data. Um, we only talk about the stuff that's really grabbing attention headlines. And we forget about all the stuff in the middle that right now is pretty boring and doesn't get headlines. But unfortunately, what we're fed and what we're, you know, paying attention to every day is the headlines, um, Brent knows this from being in years of the media, but you know, when you've been around the media long enough, what you learn is if it bleeds, it leads, right? That's the, that's the thing you put up there. So the worst it is, that's what you lead your television show with. Cause that's, what's going to get your attention coming up at 11 news of 15 people killed by a mush hound, you know, and that's, you go, what? I, I got to see that. Right. So you stay tuned to go watch whatever that is. Um, and, and, and so that's the problem is that we take that, right, and then we extrapolate that headline that that must be the case for everything, right? The, the, the whole world's like that. And it's interesting because there was a recent poll out uh, or survey out just recently, and they surveyed people. They go, well, how many people do you think in America are, you know, Catholic? And people are saying, well, like 90% of Americans are Catholic when it's like, 40%, right? And, and the, the point was, is there, there's this massive divide between what people think and what reality is. You know, half of America is, is black. It's 13%. And, and you know, that's, that's because of media, what goes on and what we see, right? And so when we see these headlines about, you know, economic issues or whatever they are, market issues, we think that that apply, that's got to be it. And so when we talk about recession, the first thing that we go back to is we go, oh, 2008 and the financial crisis. Man, last time we had a recession in the economy, we were down 50%. The world was ending and the banks were going out of business and all that. And so that's what we relate back to. And, and the problem with that, of course, is that we overreact in our portfolios. We, we start making decisions based on these you know, kind of out of tenor events that caused a lot of notoriety. That's the thing we remember. We've had lots of recessions throughout our economy where the world didn't end, right? We had a slow period of growth. Things did slow down. You did have negative growth uh, that were temporary. But, and yes, markets corrected. And then we got back on our feet and we kept, kind of kept going moving forward. And I'm not saying that's going to be the case this time. Is there, is there certainly a risk of a credit-related contagion in this economy? Absolutely. There's certainly a risk of that. I don't want to dismiss that at all because in our economy, we have more debt than ever, right? We have more people getting levered up than ever before, right? Credit cards and mortgages, and we're taking out bigger mortgages to buy bigger houses because interest rates are low and, and, and all this stuff. And so there's certainly a lot of risk. Bankruptcies on the rise. Don't want to dismiss that at all. 
don't want to dismiss the fact that, you know, the Fed's hiking interest rates. And historically, whenever the Fed's hiking interest rates, you have a rather not so great outcome. Again, not the end of the world, but, you know, you have a recession, downturn, etc. You know, this time is, and, and again, though, we have to go back and say, well, this time is different because we have all this liquidity that's in the system. And this is certainly confused a lot of individuals because everybody was expecting last year a recession. And we've talked about this before. In 2023, we wrote articles on it. Everybody was expecting a recession that probably won't have a recession. And so far, we haven't had a recession because everybody was in that camp. And again, markets price these things in. When everybody expects something to happen, markets price these things in. And now, economists are now doing the opposite. This is an article in the Wall Street Journal um, over the weekend. Economists are dialing back recession risk. Easing inflation, a still strong labor market, and economic resilience led business and academic economists polled by the Wall Street Journal to lower the probability of recession in the next 12 months to 54% from 61% uh, in the prior two surveys. Now, again, they're, you know, 54% still expecting a recession, right? But there are that number starting to decline. So as less people think there is going to be a recession, the market will begin to price for no recession. And that's where the risk of a recession actually comes back into play. I know this is very confusing. Like, right, well, wait a minute. Do we have a recession? Do we not have a recession? If the markets are pricing in a recession, which is what happened in 2022, markets declined 25%, peak to trough. They were pricing in a recession. It didn't occur, so now stocks are rallying back going, oh, okay, there was no recession. I don't need to price in for that big reduction in earnings. And this is why estimates are now off to new records by the end of, of next year. No recession. However, this is what sets the market up. It's that optimism. It's that view that allows the recession to occur that undermines what the market is pricing in. Now the market is pricing in for something not to occur, which because of that, this is the way market sentiment works, allows it to occur. I know it's confusing, but that's contrarian investing. That's how it works. So it, certainly the risk of a recession is not off the table at all. The one thing we do have to keep in mind, though, is that there is a tremendous amount of liquidity. I, I was working on a chart. I've got an article coming up talking about taxes. And yes, we talk about these issues of inverted yield curves. We talk about leading economic indicators, et cetera. And they've been negative for a long time now, and they've been in recessionary territory for a long time now, but yet no recession yet. One of the leading economic indicators that nobody really talks about much and is an obvious economic cycle indicator is tax receipts. We've had no changes to tax code recently, right? We haven't had any tax cuts. Nobody's raised taxes, anything like that, right? So we're taking a look at tax receipts, and tax receipts have had a very, very big decline on both a 12-month rate of change and a 24-month rate of change. On a 12-month rate of change, the annual change in taxes is negative 4%. On a 24-month rate of change, it's now 
growth in taxes over the last two years. Now, the rate of change is important because historically, when the tax rate, when the tax base rate of change is at 2%, that has been pre-recessionary. And we're now at negative four on a 12-month basis and, and uh, at 2% on a 24-month basis. That decline in tax collection tells you that revenue is declining and that economic growth is slowing. Why? Because taxes come from revenue. Corporations pay taxes on income. You know, they collect revenue. That's their income. They subtract out their expenses. They pay taxes on their net income. So if taxes are falling on the corporate side, which they are, then you have lower revenue to start with. So it tells you the economy is slowing. On the, on the, the household side, tax revenue is also falling because incomes are falling. Consumption is falling. So again, when we take a look at that indicator, that indicator is also one of those signs that the economy is slowing down and historically has told us that you are going to have a recession. Again, now the market's not pricing that in so much. Economists are much more optimistic. This is all going to avoid a decline. We'll see. But from a contrarian point of view, this is where you now want to start looking at that potential and paying attention to some of the data because it, may, it, it probably will be right. The question is always timing. But this is how we have to look at our portfolios. I know. It's difficult. It's confusing. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to just kind of navigate through this. But, again, it's, it's very important that as investors, we just don't jump inside of one camp or the other. It's, again, you know, when we take a look at headlines, if it bleeds, it leads. And you don't want to make investment decisions solely based on those headlines. This is why we have to look at the underlying data, take a look at time. Time is very important. The longer that numbers are negative, the more likely they're going to turn positive. Because there's only so long that an economy can be in a recessionary state before it will naturally begin to improve. That's why it's called a business cycle. Again, I know, confusing. I agree. Difficult to navigate? Absolutely. But we'll stay on top of this for you. All right, be right back after the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so this year, of course, um, again, you know, as, as we're talking about here uh, in the last segment, I know it's confusing. You know, it, it confuses me, too. And, you know, because on one side, I take a look at, at the economic data and, and can clearly make the case for, you know, not so great outcomes, valuations, et cetera. And then on the other side, we just have the technicals, which are clearly bullish at this point. Consumer sentiment improving 
as we've talked about before, when you take a look at consumer sentiment, it's a function of the wealth effect. People obviously feeling better over the last few months about their financial situation, um, all the internal components of consumer sentiment is improving on outlooks. And that's because people feel like they have more money, right? They look at their portfolios. Those are up. The market's doing great this year. You know, um, it's all good. So psychology-wise, things are improving, which means that people go out and they spend more money. And we've seen people, you know, more travel, those type of things. Um, and, and so that potentially leads to an improvement in things like leading economic indicators. So here's going to be the conundrum is that everybody keeps pointing back to these leading economic indicators going, the leading economic indicators, me included, right, tell you that we have a potential threat for a recession. But what happens if they improve in the next read? What happens if leading economic indicators begin to tick up? And see, these are the things that, again, as I was talking about, when you talk about a normal business cycle, and let's just use a real basic example just as just for a moment here. Brent makes widgets. And we have to have widgets. Widgets are very important to the functioning of our society. We have to have widgets. So we buy widgets on a regular basis because we need them. But, you know, I'm losing, you know, people are losing their jobs. There's high inflation. I don't have much money to spend. So I've got to cut back on my consumption of widgets. But remember, I have to have these widgets to survive. They're important to my daily life. I've got to have these widgets. I can cut back on them. I, maybe I don't buy as many, but I have to have them. And so as I cut back on my consumption of widgets, the economy slows down because Brent is the manufacturing side of our economy. And I'm the consumption side. So as things are slowing down, Brent reacts by making less widgets. So he consumes less commodities to make the widgets because I'm consuming less widgets that I need to survive. But at some point, I simply run out of the ability to continue running at the same level I'm at. Maybe I had some extra widgets saved up, right? And so I was able to cut back on my consumption of widgets because I had some widgets in inventory. But at some point, I'm going to run through my inventory. And I've got to go back out and I've got to say, hey, Brent, I've got to buy more widgets. And when that demand begins to return, because I've simply got to have more of these widgets, I just don't have a choice, then the economic cycle begins to pick back up again. And Brent sees this demand coming in, so he begins to hire some new workers. He consumes more commodities. As he hires new workers to come in and produce more of these widgets, he's paying them, which, again, we have to produce first in order to consume. So consumption continues to rise, and we come out on the other side of this recessionary cycle, and we begin to grow again. But there's only the point here, though, is that there's only so long that the economy can be in a slow-down, recessionary state. 
And eventually that data is going to turn. And this is why when you look at any economic data series, it doesn't matter what it is. You take a look at any economic data series. It goes up. It comes down. It goes back up again. It comes down. It oscillates. That's the cycle. There's not an economic indicator out there that goes up, comes down, and then flatlines for a long period of time. It just doesn't happen. Because we have an economic cycle and we are now pretty far into this current economic downturn. The problem is it hasn't been a normal economic downturn because we didn't see a big surge in unemployment. But again, we have to go back and look at employment. What happened just prior to this recent downturn? Had we not had the pandemic we probably would have had a much bigger layoff cycle this time around. But because of the pandemic, when we shut down the economy and we fired everybody, we haven't really, you know, there's all these headlines that the Biden administration has created more jobs than any other president in history. Not really. Because all we were doing was hiring back everybody that got fired. That's not creating new jobs. We didn't create new jobs. All we did was hire people back to the jobs we had before as the economy came back online. So it's a very different environment. We're kind of just back to where we were employment-wise prior to the pandemic. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that's probably why we didn't have a big layoff cycle because we'd already laid them off in advance of the economic downturn. So that kind of explains part of the problem. And then, of course, the other side of this is that we had you know, $5 trillion worth of liquidity. We had a shutdown in payments, moratoriums on rent and everything else, and student loan payments. And, yeah, some of those have gone away. And student loan payments are set to that moratorium set to end. And payments will restart you know, in August, September. And that's certainly going to be a weight on the economy. We've talked about that before. And, you know, economists right now are going, oh, student loan payments is just, you know, it's no big deal. And maybe it's not. But when I look at $12 to $15, $12 to $15 billion a month in potential reduction in consumption, uh, I think it's a, a bit more important. We'll see. Maybe it is a nothing burger. Maybe the economists are right. Maybe everybody saved up all their money and, and their student loan payments and they were just waiting for the student loan payments to restart and they'll just all go pay off a chunk of their student loan payment. Maybe that happened. I doubt it. <laughs> we'll see. But nonetheless, this is the thing that makes this so challenging. And, you know, as we kind of go through this, and if we take a look at technology as an example this year, technology obviously leading the charge. Now, remember just last year, everybody hated technology. In October, Fang stocks were dead. That was the, the article headlines that were coming out. Fang stocks are dead. Nobody wants to own Apple, Microsoft anymore. They're dead. They're never coming back. And remember the year before that, nobody wanted to own energy. Energy's dead. And then in 2022, energy's up 40% for the year and everything else is down 25%. This year... Everybody hated tech last year. This year, can't get enough of tech. Tech's up 40% this year, and energy's negative. I mean, this, this is the environment we're in where it's so challenging to be on the right side of the ledger. And look, I get it. This is why people just go, oh, I'm just going to buy an index. Forget it. But we have a lot of anomalies going on, and that's really making this market much harder to navigate. But this is why it's so incredibly important is that 
you know, when you listen to the media headlines, <clears throat> you've got to take some of this stuff in and go, okay, that's just the headlines. I get it. That's what's getting everybody's attention. But let's look underneath the surface and see what else is going on. And yes, there's certainly risk to the markets. Volatility is extremely low. Whenever volatility is as low, you're going to have some event at some point that creates a rise in volatility. And yes, that's going to lead to a correction, as we've been talking about. We've been, we're expecting and waiting for a 3 to 5% correction. That is completely normal in any given year, and you should expect that. When that occurs, <clears throat> when we have a 3 to 5% correction, they're going to see a lot of people coming back on the media. It's like, see, that was a bull, rally, a bull trap. The bear market's coming back. Probably not. Maybe, but probably not. Not at least in the short term. There's too much momentum, too much positive sentiment in the market right now. Um, you take a look at our technical indicators that were in our newsletter this weekend. Uh, sentiment is back to fear, greed levels. Um, you know, we're back into the greed levels on our fear, our, our uh, fear greed gauge. So we're pushing the markets and that can last for, for quite a while. So yeah, expect a pullback, but I would buy that pullback at least for now. Is there going to be a potential in the next 12, 18 months that we have another downturn in the markets? Sure. But we can't just sit around on our hands for 12 to 18 months just kind of waiting for something to happen and then, you know, you know, pat ourselves on the back when it does. Because it may occur, and it could occur from a level much higher than we are now, and it doesn't even get us back to where we are now when that correction occurs. And then you go, you know, what did I give up opportunity-wise? So let's just deal with these events as they come and deal with the markets as they are and then just make adjustments as we go. That's the only thing that we can do in this confusing environment between the economics and the technicals, between the fundamentals and the technicals, between the fundamentals and the economics. There's so many conflicting pieces of data. You know, it's, it's impossible to know what the outcome is ultimately going to be. So we just have to navigate what we have right now and manage our risks from there. All right, quick break. We'll be right back. Get ready to wrap up the show. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show you know it's interesting that outcomes are always a function of choices and it's always interesting that when the outcomes occur, 
everybody tries to figure out how it's not the fault of the choices we make, right? It's some it's somebody else's fault. It's because of, you know, COVID or it's because of this or that or the other thing. And, and you know, so these outcomes come along on these choices that we make, but yet we don't want to take the responsibility for the choices that we made. Let me give you an example of this because we we're going to see this coming to the United States as well. And we already are. Europeans are facing a new economic reality, one that they have not experienced in decades. They are becoming poorer. Life on a continent long envied by outsiders is rapidly losing its shine as Europeans see their purchasing power melt away. The French are eating less foie gras and drinking less red wine. Spaniards are stinting on olive oil. Finns are being urged to use sauna on windy days when energy is less expensive. Across Germany, meat and milk consumption has fallen to the lowest level in three decades, and the once-booming market for organic foods has tanked. Italy's economic development minister convened a crisis meeting in May over prices for pasta. <coughs> Excuse me. The country's favorite staple. I would have never guessed that. Uh, after they jumped by more than double the national inflation rate. Okay, here's the point about this. With consumption, uh, this is I'm reading to you from the Wall Street Journal. The 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 with consumption spending and freefall, Europe tipped into recession at the start of the year, reinforcing a sense of relative economic, political, and military decline that kicked in at the start of the century. Okay. Now, the point of the article is again just talking about choices. Europeans' current predicament has been long in the making. An aging population with a preference for free time and job security over earnings ushered in years of lackluster economic and productivity growth. And then it talks about COVID and the shutdowns and all these type of things. But here, everybody's missing the point. It's all about policies. Europe, just like the U.S., has spent decades spending vast sums of money that they didn't earn. It was all in debt. We've spent a, over a decade doing these monetary interventions by literally printing money and recycling debt to try to somehow create this organic economic growth environment that was all an illusion. Throw on top of that socialistic policies like nationalized health care and others that create higher tax rates. The outcome is inevitable. See, we don't want to blame any of that. We just want to blame things that are not the politicians' faults. Oh, well, it's older people not wanting to work as much. It's called retirement. But see, we don't talk about the young people not wanting to work as much. We don't talk about the young generation not wanting to put in the hours. We don't talk about, you know, the demands put on the social welfare system as a problem. See, we don't want to address the issues that debt creates because that would be the politicians' faults. And see, this none of this can be the politicians' faults because they are the all-knowing, all-seeing 
eye of economic environments. And so it obviously cannot be their fault that the political and monetary and physical decision, physical, fiscal decisions, let's get physical, um, that people are making. It can't be their their decisions, right? It has to be those of the serfs in the economy. It's their problem. But see, this is why we go back and we talk about these economic cycles that we go through. And we talk about the debt. And we talk about how higher rates of non-productive debt is bad economically. It creates low rates of economic growth. Is debt bad? No, debt is not bad. If it's used correctly. If I take out a 20% mortgage to buy a piece of rental real estate that creates an income flow that will pay for that debt over time, that is a good investment. That is a good use of debt. If I take a piece of, if I take leverage onto a business that is creating profitable cash flow and I use that leverage to increase my footprint within the economy that creates more income and more revenue that pays off that debt, that is a good use of debt. Debt is not bad. You know, Dave Ramsey used to always talk about, but pay off all your debt. And, and yeah, if you have no income and you are barely making ends meet, yes, pay off all your debt. But debt you know, I get a lot of people that come as like they have, you know, a couple million dollars in the bank and they're like, I don't want any debt. I'm like, well, that's not really a good use of your money. Keep your mortgage on your house, especially at 3%, 3.5%. Don't pay that off. That's cheap leverage. Use your capital to grow, right? So the, the proper use of debt for the government would be productive investments. The Hoover Dam. Tennessee River Valley Authority. These were good uses of debt that have paid for themselves multiple times over throughout history. And this is debt that is called productive debt. It is debt that produces a return and pays for itself. So if the government was using debt to create productive investments into the economy, that's a good use of debt. Rebuild the power grid. People pay for that, right? Because if we want to use energy, we have to pay our energy bill, which includes taxes, which if I use debt to rebuild the power grid in the economy, uh, upgrade it, get it up to new standards so it's more efficient and effective at delivering power to everybody across the United States, people pay for that. So that's a productive use of debt. That's okay. Spending debt to send checks to household is not productive. That's a one-time bump to the economy, and then what? what? What is going to pay that debt? So we issued $5 trillion in debt to send checks to households that people went out and spent their money. It's over. What's going to pay the interest on that $5 trillion of debt? Where's the income coming from from that $5 trillion in debt that we issued over the long term? See, that's non-productive debt. That was a waste of money. Not denying that at the heat of the moment that Americans needed help, but the thought process was, oh, I'm just going to send checks to households. It wasn't. It was never the thought about how do I pay this back. And see, every decision that we make as a government should be, 
okay, I'm going to issue some debt here. What's its use and how is it going to get paid back? And how is this going to create economic growth if I do this? And if it doesn't fit that bill, you don't do it. But of course, you won't get elected either. But <laughs> that's a different story. But the point is, is that what's happening in Europe is happening in the U.S. just at a slower pace because we've had this fantastic capitalistic system that operated between 1940, really 1920, till present. But up until 2000, this capitalistic system engine was generating outsized rates of return. And then in 1980 we started this whole deficit spending thing. And politicians said, oh, look, we can, we can spend more money than we have. Isn't this great? And if a little deficit is good, you know, a lot of deficit would be better. And since then, we've had slower rates of economic growth, lower rates of inflation, falling interest rates to allow the leverage to keep up the economy. We've created this massive illusion of wealth through leverage and is unsustainable and so what's happening in europe is going to happen here they're just ahead of the curve and for the young people here in this country if you're in the millennial gen z age bracket you need to be paying attention to what's happening in Europe because it's coming for you. And you're the voting class. You're the ones that are going to be voting for the politicians into office. And you should be voting for politicians. Who cares whether they're right or left? Who's got the best prescription for the economy? That's what you need to be voting for. Those, it's the policies that make the economy. It's the policies that you vote for that create your opportunities. There's an old saying is that you get the government that you vote for. And they've been voting in Europe now for decades for these socialistic ideas. And socialism always leads to the lowest common denominator in the economic class. So be careful what you vote for because what's happening in Europe is on a lag to what's happening in the U.S. And you have the power to change it. You just have to. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow, of course. Uh, we'll have some more earnings in today. We'll pick up with those tomorrow. Uh, today, we've got Bank of America, Charles Schwab, Interactive Brokers Group, uh, JP, uh, JB Hunt on transportation, uh, PNC Financial Partners, as well as Western Alliance Bank. Those are the two to watch on the regional bank side to see if things are improving or getting worse for the regional bank. So pay attention to those two earnings this morning. All right, that wraps up the show. Be back tomorrow. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Since your questions, comments, emails, let us know how we can help you. Always happy to do it. See you back here tomorrow.